This is Gareth Southgate, and this is the Three Lions Podcast. And welcome to the Three Lions podcast. My name is Russell Osborne, and this is an independent England football supporters podcast. It's one that aims to look at our England team from the past to the present and on occasions to the future. And it's not just the men, but the women too. But this episode in the year of 2022, we are looking at the men. It is the year of the 22nd World Cup tournament. I've been looking back at how England have performed in previous years with the help of people who were there, either playing or supporting the team, either here in 1966 or across the world over the years. All those previous episodes can be found at 3 or your podcast provider of choice. And there are some real fascinating stories to be heard, going right back to the very first World Cups, to the first one England participated in, in 1950, when we won it, and all those times we've been knocked out. (laughs) But this episode focuses in on the 16th tournament, known as the Coupe du Monde, France 98. After not qualifying for USA in 1994, England had to make amends and go to the next World Cup. One that couldn't be closer. France were awarded the tournament on the 2nd of July 1992, when once again the executive committee of FIFA met in Zurich, Switzerland. Initially, Switzerland showed interest in hosting, as did England, although we later withdrew once we were awarded the 96 euros. Switzerland, well they also withdrew as they decided they couldn't meet all of FIFA's requirements. That only left two bidding nations on the table, France and Morocco. You may remember there was a story about bribery and corruption surrounding the whole hosting process and a certain Chuck Blazer, an American soccer administrator. It was considered France had bribed their way to hosting victory, although it was later determined it was Morocco who ultimately failed in their bid, losing the vote 12-7. to As hosts, France wouldn't have to qualify. Neither would holders Brazil, who had won it in America, thanks to Roberto Baggio's Italian penalty that went over the bar as that 94 final went to spot kicks. France 98 was a competition that had 32 nations compete in it. Four from Asia, five from Africa, three from CONCACAF, five from South America and 15 from Europe. The French would designate nine cities and ten stadiums to the competition, all of them needing a lot of finance and the building work to bring them all up to FIFA standard. It also broke ground and built a new stadium right from scratch that would eventually host the final, the Stade de France, just on the northern outskirts of Paris in the Saint-Denis area. It was started in 1995 and completed 
in November 1997. Those other host cities were Marseille, Lyon, Lens, Nantes, Saint-Étienne, Bordeaux and Montpellier. France, like Mexico and Italy had done, would host it for the second time, having first hosted it 60 years previous in 1938, when back then they hosted the third World Cup. England's qualification began with a new manager, Glenn Hoddle. Our semi-final defeat to Germany in Euro 96 was Terry Venable's last in charge, and that was regardless of how far England progressed. He'd already said it'd be his last. At the time, he was also involved in a court case that went back to his time with Tottenham Hotspur. And according to the Guardian newspaper, he's quoted as saying these court cases would interfere with the national side's efforts to qualify for the 1998 World Cup. So even before Euro 96 had begun, the FA had appointed Glenn Hoddle to take over. This regardless of how England performed in the tournament under Venables. England were drawn against Moldova, Georgia, Old Foes Poland and Italy in UEFA's Group 2. Hoddle's first match was away to Moldova, a match where he chose to bring David Beckham into the England fold and give him his debut. It was a qualification campaign that had no end of problems or incidents to deal with for Hoddle. Arsenal's Tony Adams was serving time at Her Majesty's Pleasure in Chelmsford for drink driving. Rio Ferdinand had also been suspended for the same offence. Paul Gascoigne was front-page news after he had admitted beating up his wife, Cheryl. Hoddle had to deal with various domestic abuse charities, insisting that he didn't pick Gaza, as it would set the wrong example. Shearer, Sheringham and Pierce were all injured at various points. And Diana, Princess of Wales, had died in a car crash in Paris some 11 days before a crucial home match against Moldova. The mood of the nation was sombre. England would beat Moldova away in September 96, 3-0. In the same year, they'd beat Poland at home and Georgia away. February 97, Italy came to Wembley and beat us by a goal to nil. April and May, England played Georgia at home and Poland away. Both 2-0 victories. September 97, England beat Moldova 4-0 at home. It then came down to the last game in October of 97. It was a group that was nip and tuck all the way and England eventually sealed it with a Lions performance in Rome on the final day. It was 0-0. Interestingly, future England manager Roy Hodgson was part of the England set-up in the lead-up to that match. He would act as a secret agent, if you will, compiling a dossier on the Italians, having previously been manager of Inter Milan. He also acted as a translator to Hoddle whilst in Rome. Italy, well, they'd look to draws with Georgia and Poland as their downfall for not qualifying automatically. Two days after that heroic match in Rome, Hoddle announced that his marriage had come to an end. Italy would eventually qualify after beating Russia in the playoffs. Croatia and Belgium would also come through this European pathway. 
as did the Federal Republic of Yugoslavia, as they were known as at the time, after they beat Hungary 12-1 over two legs. With England qualified and the squad yet to be picked, Hoddle again became front-page news with a left-field selection, that of Eileen Drury, a faith healer. Drury was someone whom Hoddle had known since his playing time at Tottenham, first meeting her in 1976. In fact, she was the mother of an early girlfriend of his. When Hoddle's marriage unfolded, he'd go and live with Drury for almost a year. She wasn't picked to go to France, though, although later Hoddle admitted that perhaps he should have picked her. England would warm up for their big trip across the Channel with a shocking nil-nil draw at home to Saudi Arabia. Then two games in Morocco in a minor tournament called the Coupe Internationale Hassan II de Football. A four-team tournament which featured England, France, Morocco and Belgium. Oddly, each team would only play two games. We didn't play France and Morocco didn't play Belgium. But in this little tournament, Michael Owen would score his first senior goal in a 1-0 victory over Morocco and in doing so, became England's youngest ever goalscorer, beating Tommy Lawton's 50-year record. We then drew 0-0 with Belgium and lost 4-3 on penalties and would finish runners-up in this little tournament behind France. It was only two days after his 31st birthday Paul Gascoigne would play his last England match in that game against Belgium. He was withdrawn after 50 minutes, a shadow of his former self. It was now that Hoddle had to select his 22. Each squad had to be announced by the 1st of June, with the tournament beginning on the 10th. Hoddle announced his on the 31st of May, a day that began with a massive earthquake in northern Afghanistan, leaving 5,000 dead. A day also when Jerry Halliwell announced she was leaving the Spice Girls. It was a day that wasn't going to get any better for some. The 22 Hoddle picked would all play in the Premier League, and they were as follows. Three goalkeepers, David Seaman of Arsenal, Nigel Martin of Leeds United, Tim Flowers of Blackburn Rovers. Defenders, Sol Campbell of Tottenham Hotspur. Graham Lasseau, Chelsea. Tony Adams, Arsenal. Gareth Southgate, Aston Villa. Gary Neville of Manchester United. Martin Keown of Arsenal. Rio Ferdinand of West Ham United. In midfield, there was Paul Lintz from Liverpool. David Beckham of Manchester United. David Batty, Newcastle United. Steve McManaman of Liverpool. Tottenham's Darren Anderton, who incidentally had only played three games that season. Paul Merson, who was at Middlesbrough. Paul Scholes of Manchester United. Rob Lee of Newcastle United. And then four up front, Alan Shearer as captain from Newcastle United. Teddy Sheringham, Manchester United. Les Ferdinand of Tottenham Hotspur. And Michael Owen of Liverpool. No Phil Neville. No Jamie Redknapp. No Ian Wright, who after that Italy game had publicly said to Hoddle, please pick me for the World Cup, but subsequently picked up a hamstring injury against Morocco. There was no Robbie Fowler, but the big one, 
no Paul Gascoigne. The reason Hoddle gave was he was unfit, but clearly there was more to it. His off-the-field antics had caught up with him, being caught in central London, late at night, kebab in hand. He was in the middle of a divorce. He was still drinking. His frame of mind just wasn't there, and Hoddle had to make that call. To say Gazza didn't take it well is a little of an understatement. The hotel room in which he called players into to tell them of their fate took a beating as Gascoigne kicked a chair, smashed a glass lamp and Hoddle feared at one point that he would be next as the red mist came over Gaza. When it did come to June, England would base themselves on the Brittany coast of France, some 70 kilometres from Nantes, in a small village called Saint-André-des-Yeux. It would be in the same region as where Norway would base themselves. Now, if you're a regular listener to this series of shows, you'll know that I like to take a look at some of the little things that make the World Cup so special. The songs, the mascots, the posters. France 98 was no different. England's official World Cup song was by England United called On Top of the World. England United were basically Ian McCulloch, frontman of Echo and the Bunnyman, Johnny Marr, guitarist from the Smiths. There were members of Space and Ocean Colour Scene also featuring, as did the Spice Girls. It reached number nine in the UK charts. Frankly, it wasn't the best, as the 98 version of Three Lions and Vindaloo by Fat Les were much more catchy and terrace-friendly. Keith Allen and Matt Lucas, they were Fat Les. Vindaloo was a song that had no real football credentials and a video that had very little football-related footage. In fact, it parodied the Verve's Bittersweet Symphony. But I guess the theme to the summer was, of course, Dario G's Carnival de Paris, a song that seemed to encapsulate every nation taking part. Footix was the mascot, a name that came about as a combination of football and ix, a common suffix with the French Gaul people. Footix was a cockerel, one of the national symbols of France. It was predominantly blue with a yellow face and red hair, with France 98 emblazoned across its puffed out chest. I remember it was on pretty much everything. You may remember there was a logo of a ball emerging over the curve of the world. This wasn't the actual poster. The poster was a colourful affair, but with no real direction. It was simply a bird's eye view of a stadium and a pitch with Coupe de Monde above and France 98 below. A little disappointing in my opinion. So on we get to the TV soundtracks. The BBC went with a track called Pavane by French composer Gabriel Fauré. Set within a posh French restaurant, 
Parisian, I'd assume, with famous World Cup moments set within the walls of the restaurant. It also featured stereotypical red wine and baguettes as part of its intro. ITV went with a more punchy intro with French instrumental artist Jean-Michel Jarre and his track Rendezvous. Again, like the BBC, there were all those French moments. The Tour de France, vineyards, boules and all those iconic World Cup moments from years gone by put to the music. Now here joining me to talk about that tournament in France is author of the book Lost in France, the story of England's 1998 World Cup. Please welcome to the Three Lions podcast, Mark Palmer. Hello, Mark. Hello there. Good to see you, Russ. Yeah, not too bad. Good, good, good stuff. Uh, Yeah, this was your first book, wasn't it? It was my first book. Yeah, it was. Um, I think what... uh, to be honest, what gave me the inspiration for it was um, was reading the book uh, about um, Italia 90. Did you right. read that? I've, I've read numerous ones on Italia 90, whether it was yeah. the same one. <laughs> which was, um, you know, which was which was amazing. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, that was that was Italia 90. And then by the time you get to 1998, it was actually much harder to get sort of proper access to to the players and, and that sort of thing. But. I was quite fortunate. I would say I got sort of pretty good access to 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 a lot of the players. I very much kind of worked with the press pack and and then kind of diverted and and then sort of joined the fans and that sort of thing. So um, yeah, so it was a kind of it was it was started off as a sort of travel log in some ways. Um, but uh, World Cups have always been for me that I could mark my life out in in World Cups. Yeah. Uh, so it was a, it was a real sort of pleasure to do it and and uh, and to turn it around um you know pretty pretty swiftly yeah the only other thing i'd say russell is that the um <laughs> the success of of a book like that is only really as as much as the success of the of the team in question and uh, and um and i'm i'm afraid that i mean i believe that um that actually that the England team in '98 and that particular last game against Argentina was um, one of the one of the one of the greatest games of all time uh, from 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 an England perspective. I think it was right up there with um, the England Germany uh, World Cup semi final, okay. and I think that I can't help but thinking that if somehow you know we got through and won that penalty shootout against Argentina, that we could actually have gone all the way but we'll never know no well well we'll touch on argentina uh, i'm sure as as we go along but you say you were you were involved in or the the press pack as it were i mean just to bring us right up to date you are now currently the the travel editor for the daily mail i believe that's right that's yeah. right yeah yeah so you were milling around all, all the players and and the press conferences that were going on at the time but i think before we I think before we touch on the the actual World Cup and the tournament, there's there's two maybe issues that we we maybe just ought to to look back on. And first of 
them that I'd maybe just like to look back on was the the ticket situation with the was the like the UK government and I remember it being in the news quite a lot. What what was your memories of of that? Well, my memory really was just that it was uh, it was incredibly difficult to 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 get tickets. There was always a there's always a row about how many tickets are allocated to to each team. But I think that the the reason it was such a problem uh, was because France obviously is on our doorstep, and so it was always going to be obvious that that thousands of people were going to were going to make the trip, even for the first game, which was in Marseille, which is you know as far away as you can get it basically in France. But um, so you were always going to get that problem. I think the second so so one was was the the venue was was an issue, and then and secondly, I think the culture at that time was still pretty hostile. I think there was still a lot of elements, unfortunately, amongst the sort of traveling fans that went there, not really, um, perhaps just to sort of enjoy the football and, and the carnival, but for, for, for other reasons. And so I think those two things kind of came together and, and caused a, a massive problem. Yeah, there was a lot of money supposedly spent on trying to stop people going and, and this whole identification checks, that sort of thing, was there? Yeah, that's right. Um, but I mean, it, it, that that didn't work. Um, and then you had the fans' representatives who, who were there, who sort of set up their own kind of office, if you like, in, in, in around sort of each venue. So it was a, it was a very um, it was a very difficult atmosphere, I have to say. And um, and and then, of course, in those days, still from the press point of view, you had the, the football writers, and then you had a lot of um, the, the news reporters who went out who who. They weren't looking for trouble, but certainly they were there to report on what was going on off the pitch. Right. So I think it was quite it was quite a kind of difficult atmosphere for everybody to manage. Well, the other big moment, I guess, before the, the tournament took place was the exclusion of Paul Gascoigne. Mm. Well, um I have a I have a history. I don't know whether I don't think I mentioned it very much in the in the book, but uh I have a kind of a history with um with Gaza, and uh, I think, incidentally, that you know he, he's without doubt the most talented English footballer that uh, that I've ever seen, really, um, in terms of his ability to to change the face of a game and everything. But when I was working, um, I was a, a, a new, kind of quite junior news reporter at the Sunday Telegraph at the time, and um, this was just after he, when he was at Tottenham, and when he got transferred to Lazio, and. I got to know um, Gascoigne's uh, kind of financial advisor and things. Um, he had two two advisors, really, who I don't think actually advised him very well. But anyway, um, and I found out they tell me which hotel Gaza was going to be staying in when he when he went to uh, to Rome. When he, do you remember he was injured at the time? And That's he had right. A bit of, of rehabilitation, um, and they also told me which plane he was going to be on, and and so I actually booked the same plane as Gaza and then booked the same um, hotel as Gaza. Wow. It's quite a small hotel. And, and I was actually the only journalist that was in this hotel. So Gaza and I spent quite a lot of time together and we played, we played, used to play chess in the evenings and, and, uh, and, you know, I got, I became actually very fond of him to be perfectly honest. And uh, I, I realized how vulnerable he was. Um, he wasn't drinking at the time. He was determined to get fit and, 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 and it was absolutely mad. There was like thousands of people outside this hotel, you know, 
24 hours a day. And, uh, and you know, he really had become a sort of a cult figure. And so I was really looking forward to, and then after, you know, 90, Euro 96, when he did really well, I still thought that, you know, he had in it, he had in him the ability to kind of take England one step further and, and, uh, and to win us the World Cup. But um, as we all know, it all went sort of badly wrong in, 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 that, uh, in that lead up to the World Cup. And to be perfectly frank with you, I think Glenn Hoddle did probably the right thing in not taking him because it just had spiralled out of, out of control. Um, but, I've, but I still have got very, a lot of affection for Gaza. I think I think we all have, haven't we? Yes. It's one of those ones, had he have gone, we'll never know, much like had we have beaten uh, Argentina on penalties. But uh, yeah, let, let's start at the beginning. You you were driving around or taking trains all around France in just checking it all out before that first game in Marseille. Yeah, I mean, I'd, um, uh, the backdrop to that is that... Um, I was actually working at the Daily Express at the time um, and I got, I just got sacked. The new editor came in. I had quite a senior position on the paper and a new editor came in, new owner actually as well. And um, so I got, I was, I was, I was sacked basically. Um, but I had this book already lined up and had a publisher and everything. So it was actually quite therapeutic just to sort of get in the car and, and drive um, to, um, well, first of all, to, to, to Marseille um and um kind of pivotal to the to the book in a way was was when i i picked up these two guys or you know i think they were um i think they were going by train or whatever and i kind of drove them uh, to a lot of venues and to understand through them you know what it really meant to be to you know to be an england fan to 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 i think one of them had tickets the other didn't and you know the, how hard it was to get tickets and and that sort of thing, um, and so yeah, so so I just I sort of travelled around and stayed sometimes in little sort of B and Bs or sometimes I camped, sometimes I slept in the car. Um, so I was doing it off my own bat in 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 that way, and uh, but it was yeah, it was a, it was a wonderful experience. Well, let's let's start in Marseille. Obviously, it's it's known for the trouble that that occurred there. Um, and England fans either getting caught up in it or or being involved in it. Were, were you there? What, what was your experience of it? Yeah, I was there. Um, and um, the day the, the the day of the first game, even the night before, uh, the, it was very hot, and um, and there was just there was just a, a a nasty atmosphere unfortunately around all around the um the harbor in in marseille and uh and uh, people you know they're drinking i think they kind of tried to water down the beer but it didn't it didn't really work and uh and then of course there was the sort of the algerian uh, influence in in marseille and um it i think it it just it brought out a, a very horrible horrible side of of the sort of i don't know something to do with the british psyche or whatever it was and there was that feeling of being a kind of invading army and um and all of that and and then you know you you could you can argue it both ways you could say that the, the police then started to sort of panic a little bit and got heavy-handed and overreacted um on the other hand you know um Glasses started to be thrown, bottles started to be thrown, 
um, you know, there was sort of a lot of sort of racial uh, racist chanting and and that sort of thing. And uh, and then we, I went up to the um, Glenn Hoddle's interview before the first game, and and the players were sort of going through their last sort of training thing. And um, and that was when we heard that uh, that it all it all just just sort of gone off in back in the in the town centre, and so I kind of went back into town and and honestly I was I was I was frightened I felt sort of uh, you know particularly because um, I don't know if that point because I had accreditation uh, as a kind of member of the press which got me the access that I kind of wanted and so I don't know whether it was because I had a kind of thing around my neck or something and there was definitely in those days uh, a lot of English fans didn't trust the the press yeah. right or wrong and so they singled out the press and and would give you a right going over if they they knew who you were um so i did i felt i felt actually very i felt very um felt quite sort of frightened by by and and disappointed and uh and embarrassed in a way because i don't know if you know marseille but it's a it's a beautiful city and and uh and basically it wasn't a beautiful city um you know twenty four you know for for sort of forty eight hours during that game. Yeah, unfortunately, I've I've only been to Marseille once, and and that was the the second time that England played there during the the twenty sixteen Euros. When unfortunately there was there was more trouble there. Uh, but but moving yeah. on on to the game, yeah, it I I remember where I was for this. I was I was watching it in the pub back home, and it was a midday kickoff, and and I remember like the BBC were it was either BBC or ITV showing it midday almost really hot blazing sun down there on a sort of sweltering afternoon but England got the uh got the job done didn't they <laughs> yeah well they did I think that um you know there was I think the first thing is to say is that there was um getting to the World Cup in getting to that World Cup required a as you know that that going to Rome and 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 coming away with a result of some yes. kind against Italy um and that was an incredible uh game and um a lot of people think that that was Gaza's best game Ian Wright played that game um hit the post I think and uh and it was a it was a terrific performance so I think going into the World Cup I think you know I think the mood was was pretty optimistic there was already uh before that first game there was already a debate about uh whether Shearer and and, and Owen should should play together uh and uh so that was going on but yeah, it was a very hot day, uh, and it was, as you say, I think it was. A, yeah, I think it was. I think it was a sort of. Was it a sort of two o'clock kickoff or something like that? Sort of yeah. or something like that. And um, and Shearer scored, and and you know, yeah. So England were were up and running. I, I don't think anybody would say it was a. I think, as you say, it was job done. But I don't think anybody would say that was a sort of vintage performance. No, no. So it was a ideal start to a World Cup campaign to to get three points on the board. Yeah, then yeah. I there, say about Owen, um, there was also the situation with Beckham as well. Both were young, um, both were eager to to be involved, and I, from what I can gather, that the press were were hounding Hoddle to get him to to to, to play them and, and involve them, but he was reluctant early. Yes, he was. Um... I mean, Hoddle was Hoddle was is, was a interesting character actually, and uh, you know he 
he didn't always have the best sort of relationship with 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 the press and i think that you know he, he was very different for example from from terry venables who you know who, who was um a different sort of character in some ways um but um he played his you know he played his cards very very close to his chest uh he never would really be drawn about why he wasn't playing you know certain certain people um and um and there was there was that there was that as you rightly say there was that sort of ongoing issue all the way through as to as to who why didn't why didn't he actually just you know play the players who were in form um but i think all managers don't they they all have their kind of favorites or people they think they can they can rely on and and it was no it was no different with hoddle although you know I mean, I don't know whether you listen, Russell, to Hoddle now and his analysis when he's doing the, the, the his pundit. And I think he's hopeless now and says the most obvious things. But at the time, and uh, um, I thought actually that he was tactically, you know, he was very good. And we'll come on to to the Argentina game later, where actually I think he played he he, he played a blinder. So when it comes to Hoddle, you know, I think um, you know he 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 had his his issues, but fundamentally um and it also helped i think that and it was often the case when you watched england in training during that world cup and sometimes that the ball would come to hoddle and he would just sort of take it on his chest or his thigh and he'd sort of juggle around with it and uh, and you know he was still absolutely brilliant in that respect sort of showing them that he hadn't lost it well exactly yeah yeah, yeah. And, and and kind of Dare you can't dare you criticize me because I can still do it, kind of thing. Yeah. Well, after the Marseille game, it was on to Toulouse, where they would place Romania. And I think there was a, a a nice little story in the book where you I think it was in between these two places where you had a little bit of trouble at a um at a toll booth or a toll toll gate with your car. Um where it was I don't remember that, Russell. I'm going to have to. I'm going to have to. I'm going to have to look at that. that look that up. Um, <laughs> Let me remind you. Your, your car started to roll away. Oh my God! Did it really? Um, where did it go? <laughs> it was rolling down the road. Apparently. <laughs> <laughs> How did we stop it? I think you ran after it um, <laughs> and, and put your hand through the window and uh, and pulled the handbrake up as it was rolling away as people were, were seeing this runaway car. Runaway car. God, was I on my own or did I have my two lads with me? <laughs> maybe, maybe that'll come back to you. But, um, yeah, going on, on to Toulouse. And was, was Toulouse one of the places where there was an alcohol ban? Well, I think Toulouse had the beer tents. Um, I don't think there was a. I don't think there was an alcohol ban. No. Uh, but uh, Toulouse has this uh, has the biggest square, I think, of, of any city in Europe. And uh, again, it's a you know wonderful city. And I think I think that's part of the pleasure of following England is you know is you get to see you know these these sort of you know these great places. Um, I don't think there was an alcohol ban, but you know you could be. You could be right, um, but I don't. I don't remember that. I just do remember all these kind of beer tents and plastic glasses and, yeah. and that sort of thing. Well, unfortunately, uh, England lost in Romania, so that momentum after losing, after beating Tunisia, was was stopped. Um, what do you remember the the feeling after that? Um, well, I just think there was a feeling after that of of you know. There's always just kind of a, um, you know, 
at sort of inquisition and uh, and that sort of thing. And uh, you know, at the same time, I think it may, it concentrated the mind, and then you know, everybody knew what what had to happen after that. You know, I mean, Romania were you know, they, I mean, they were they were they were a good side, and uh, but you know, you were saying that you get off to a good start when you you win the you win your first game. Um, conversely, you know, um, and in 1966, when England won the World Cup, you know, they didn't win their first game. And, and, and sometimes, you know, some teams start, start slowly. Uh, so, um, you know, maybe we should have played Romania first. I don't know. Maybe. Maybe you're right. Uh, I mean, because everyone had their eyes on the other group, which, were, which consisted uh, of Japan, Jamaica, Croatia and Argentina. And it would be a case of whoever finished top of England's Group G would face the second place in Group H and, and then vice versa, second in Group H would play top of Group G. Uh, but the last game to determine who would finish, it was against Colombia. And and this was where Hoddle decided that, that he would introduce Beckham and Owen. Yeah, so um, there'd been a growing sort of... Uh, Ravaji Baji about um, about Beckham, and it, it went back. I think I recall to Hoddle being less than complimentary, and then getting Beckham after he what didn't play in the last game to to do an interview, you know, to the press and everything else. And Beckham, you know, was was a young kid really at that stage. And then Alex Ferguson, uh, he waded in, didn't he, and and was saying that's no way to treat Beckham, and you know, did his confidence no good, and uh, and. <laughs> And then by this stage, which always happens, you know, the, the England manager and the, and the press, there's this sort of growing tension. And uh, it can, always comes down to the point where the England manager, almost whoever it is, perhaps not uh, Terry Venables, but it starts to sort of blame, you know, the, the press and, and kind of almost thinking that the press wants us to fail. And where, from my experience, completely the opposite is the case, that the, the, the press want England to do really well, not least because it means that it keeps the story going, you yes. can stay out there longer and, and, and everything else. So, so we had then the, we had the growing Beckham issue uh, come leading up to the Columbia game. And then we also had the, the, the can, should you be playing both Owen and, and Shearer rather than, than having sort of Owen, you know, as, as a substitute. And, uh, and, and so those are the two sort of issues really. And then as we get, get into the Columbia game, the reason the atmosphere was, I think, so amazing was because obviously it's a very close, it's just hop over the channel yeah. and then what, a couple of hours or whatever, and then, and then you're in Lens. So, so it, was a, it, was a, you know, it was a terrific atmosphere and, and a great sort of build-up. Nice little tight sort of English ground as, as much. But uh, England, well, we, we won the game, Anderton scored, and, and Beckham, all that build-up, should he play? Will he play? Hoddle finally gives him the uh, the green light to play. Scored a fantastic free kick. Exactly, exactly. And and uh, so you know, I suppose that was 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 crucial. You know that, and and I think also the the Shearer. Um, who was it? Was dropped? Was it Anderton that was dropped? Oh, that's right, Sheringham, wasn't it? The big thing was that Hoddle had a he liked Sheringham very much, and and everything else, but Sheringham actually was on was he on the bench or he didn't play it at all I don't think and and Owen and Shearer did and and did well and and so then you know the, but the other thing is Russell that so I think do we top the group I forget now um, no we actually finished second in the group second okay but which meant 
that then and we knew then, didn't we, that we were going to play Argentina as That's opposed right. to was it playing Croatia? Am I right? That's uh, right. Yeah. Yeah. So if we obviously if we if we hadn't lost the um, the the second game and then we need you know we did probably needed to to top the group, which is interesting, isn't it? Because sometimes by topping the group, you know, you end up having a worse draw than than coming runners up. Yeah, I mean, incidentally, Croatia, they were in their first ever World Cup and and would go on to make the semi-final there. Sure, um, yeah. So you, yeah. you never really know. You, you, never, you never really know. No, I mean, just touching on, I mean, obviously we've spoken about the, the issues that sort of first happened in Marseille and the opening game, but there was also some trouble with with German hooligans, uh, also in Lons. This, apparently this was shortly before uh, England arrived in Lons for this game. The, a, a French policeman um, was unfortunately um, yeah, yeah, that's up, right. I read. Yeah, no, that's right. Um, and uh, I think they, I think it was, they sort of, it was all always sort of flagged out that these Germans were going to just come and, and, and cause trouble. I mean, it was a, uh, Kind of almost like a tribal thing, you know. It was, it was, it was pretty, it was pretty unpleasant. But yeah. uh, I think actually in that game, though, the England fans behaved, behaved quite well, didn't they? I think. I believe uh, so. And uh, there wasn't, you know, there wasn't uh, wasn't too much trouble. And unlike in Marseille, where there was a lot of people there that on both sides, you know, that that sort of went there with the wrong intentions. I don't think that was primarily the case in uh, in Lens. Yeah. Well. We got past Colombia, as you say, we we were then second place in the group. Argentina were the opponents in the round of sixteen. Of course, twelve years since they uh, since they dumped us out of Mexico, courtesy of uh, Maradona and his golden hand, golden foot, whatever you, way you want to look at it. Unfortunately, but Argentina were the were the opponents again. Saint Etienne. What was were your memories in in the build up to that? Um, well, Saint Etienne is very near Lyon, of course, isn't it? Mm. Um, and it's a it was a small little little French town, um, nice square. Um, the weather was fantastic. Uh, immediately, you, you realise this is going to be a massive game, and and I think some of us thought that when you look at that side on paper, even now, that was a good team. There were some very very good. Players. There was a mixture of experience and, and, and youth and, and everything. And I think there was a feeling that if somehow we could get through that game, that we could really kind of go go all the way. And there was there was that feeling of, of tremendous sort of anticipation. And just as a side note, I, I called up a friend of mine uh, called Chris. Um, who, he, we were at school together and he was the captain of our, of our team. He was a great player. I said, Chris, look, I think you've really just got to get yourself over here. And he just got married and just had a child, just started a new job and just moved into your home. And he said, give me 10 minutes. And then 10 minutes later, he, he found me back and he said, I'll be at the at the Gardenor uh, arriving at 10 o'clock uh, the day before the game. So, uh, so I came down from Lens to Paris, picked him up at 10 o'clock. And by sort of late lunchtime, we were in, in Saint-Étienne. Um, of course, he didn't have a ticket. That was the that was the one thing. And there was I think as we discussed before, there was throughout that whole World Cup that you know it was because it was so you know France close to to Britain and all that. So many people went without a ticket. My kind of recollection of the build up was primarily kind of on his behalf, worrying how on earth he's come all this way. Is he actually going to get into the ground? And uh, yeah. 
And I told him, and I thought, you know, he's going to have to pay about sort of 200 pounds, which I guess is about equivalent to what, three or 400 pounds in today's money. Yeah. And so he didn't seem particularly sort of worried about it. And uh, so on the morning of the game, we went and had a fantastic lunch somewhere. And then after lunch, you know, fortified by, uh, by the local wine or whatever, <laughs> he went, went out on the street and he actually got a ticket. I think he got a ticket for um, £150 or, 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 or something like that. Um, and so, so he, was, he, he got into the stadium. And then what I recall is to just... In the square again, it, it was there was a good atmosphere, um, and uh, just again the, the English fans kind of took it over, and then a kind of slow procession um, towards the stadium. I think I'm right in saying it was a kind of it was certainly an evening kickoff. I don't know yeah. whether it was sort of seven thirty or five thirty. Not quite sure, but uh, but but you know there was a fair number of Argentinians there as as well, which I thought was was interesting. It was a pro- you knew it was going to be a proper football match, but didn't quite realise it was going to be quite the drama that it turned out to be. Well, I mean, for £150, he, he certainly got his money's worth for, for entertainment because, I mean, some would say that was the game of the tournament. I mean, for the first 45 minutes, it was, it was entertainment all the way, regardless of, of what nation you were supporting because uh, it, it started with two penalties, wasn't it? Batistuta right. scored one for Argentina, then Shearer got one for England. Yeah, yeah. You, you, in the book, you, you mentioned that there was a little bit of trouble in the stands. I think that's possibly where there was maybe both sets of supporters with, I don't know, black market tickets integrating with each other. Yeah, I think so. Um, and then came the, uh, the, the... Then England, six minutes later, then came the... The moment of the World Cup, the moment of the game, the moment of quite possibly Michael Owen's life. Yeah, exactly. Paddy Barkley, who was then, um, was he running for the Telegraph? or he, he described it as a kind of apostolic moment and, and uh, that just a sort of unbelievable experience of watching this. Because Michael Owen, what was he? Was he 18 at that point? Yeah. Something like that? Yeah. Um, and... Uh, an incredible pass from from David Beckham, to be fair, and then for for Owen to take it, just you know, to bring it under control, and and then and then he just did what you know. But you're absolutely right. I mean, that was probably Owen's greatest moment wearing an an, an England shirt. Sadly, you know, mm. um, and he just sort of went went past what sort of four Argentinians, and and then still had quite a lot to do to to, to beat the keeper, and it was just euphoric moment it was it was like watching something of great beauty <laughs> yeah it's I mean I'm guessing that being there you against Argentina knowing how how important it it was and and in hindsight could have been but even now we look back on it and it is it's just a magnificent goal for someone of his of his age um yeah. to have that much confidence and as well to hoddle hadn't really sort of shown maybe not shown the faith in him leading up to it but he 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 like Beckham in the the game previous sort of showed him look this is what you're missing this is what I can do yeah um, yeah you know absolutely um and um and I think there was a feeling after that goal that uh well one had to sort of pinch oneself to 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 think that you know it was gonna it was gonna stay like that yeah I mean because just before half time uh, it was a a really clever free kick that Argentina 
equalised with. There was a lot of yeah, yeah, sort of tippy tappy around the box, and oh, I think that's right. yeah, that's involved, right. yeah. and, and yeah. Sonetti put it in. Yeah, yeah. So then we were well. Then we were at two all, weren't we? At half time, before the before the real drama happened. (laughs) (laughs) Again, and we say that Michael Owen's life changed. Then it could arguably be said that David Beckham's life changed in that second half. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I mean, he he was you know, it was a terrible moment, but it also. Who was it? Was it? Was it? But who was it that uh, he kicked? Um, was it Simeone uh, or Pochettino? Simeone, I, I think. Yeah, yeah, Simeone, and uh, who kind of you know he 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 just I guess Beckham sort of fell for it. It was just it wasn't a kick, was it really? I mean, just brought his leg up, and um, but I suppose technically speaking, you know, it was it was a foul, um, and off he goes and. Yeah, you're right. Then after that, that was when Beckham had to endure the most extraordinary amount of abuse, didn't he? Um, mm. And and everything. So off he goes, and and we and then and then we're down to to ten men. And this is where I think, uh, in my view, that Glenn Hoddle uh, showed that um, he was actually a very good manager. There was a lot of other stuff going on off off the field and everything else, but you know, we were down to ten men, but still somehow. He made the team believe that they could still win, and the way he rotated Shearer and Owen every fifteen minutes, so that one came back playing right, right back, almost like you know five man defence, just one man up front, and and just you know and kept it going for the rest of that half and for the whole of extra time, which was you know uh, an an unbelievable achievement. And then of course then the then we had the the extraordinary drama of. Sol Campbell scoring what most of us thought was a perfectly legitimate yes. goal. <laughs> well, this was a thing he scored from, a, I believe, a header, which was ultimately disallowed because I think Shearer had impeded someone. The England players were were celebrating. the The Danish referee Kim Morton Nielsen had disallowed it, blown his whistle, and the Argentinians had got on with the game whilst half the England team were were still celebrating. Exactly. Exactly. And they went down the, they went down the other end and, and very nearly scored themselves. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It was Veron, wasn't it? It was back down the other end. We had it that uh, or I read somewhere that it was at that point that the Queen was actually watching that game. Was she? And, uh, yeah, apparently. Uh, and, and apparently it was at that point that she actually shouted at the television. <laughs> I can't imagine Her Majesty doing that. I know. Um, Mind you, we were um, all doing the same. We were, we were, and uh, I mean, you could, you could. I I remember that I'm not not really a smoker, but I, I just got to work my, work work, my way through a unfiltered packet of Gitan cigarettes by that. (laughs) You know, you were allowed to smoke in the, in the, um, in the stadium then. Yeah. Um, So yeah, and um, and then you know. The, the English fan, the, the 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 great escape sort of theme tune was coming up, and and then I think uh, Simeone was substituted at the start of extra time, I think, and no. Peron, you know, took up the the armband. And uh, anyway, we got to the to the penalty. Yeah, got to the penalties. I mean, and everyone immediately thinks back to nineteen ninety 1990 to nineteen ninety six, 
Um, and then it is 1998 penalties against Argentina. Um, I, I, I think immediately Seaman saved one. I yeah, think. yeah, that's right. Um, we had three experienced penalty takers on on the pitch. I think we had we had Shearer Owen, very young, and and Paul Merson. Yes, um, and Anderton would have probably taken the fourth one, but he had come off and he was replaced by by David Batty. Mm. Um, so, um, and Argentina, I think, had at least six kind of recognised penalty takers. You know, it, it was yeah. Anyway, and then um, at the beginning of the book, um, I went to the Liverpool training ground and. Paul Ince, we, we sat in his car actually, and, yeah. and uh, which for about an hour, and he was, you know, he was charming. And, um, and that was when I asked him about, you know, if it ever came to it, um, how he'd feel taking a penalty. And, and, um, and he was very honest and said that he would, he would take one, but he'd rather not. Mm. Um, and, I, and I just remember as he walked towards taking his penalty, just, just so wanting him to. But knowing that there were obviously doubts in you know in in his mind and uh, and his penalty was a was a very poor one um, and uh, so that let um, Argentina back into the well back into it really after you said after Seaman had, had saved one and then um, and then of course it was David Batty then who who missed the um, the, the last one wasn't he'd, it? he'd never taken a penalty before I believe. Had he not? Had no, he not? it was a very strange decision. Yeah. Um, for yeah. Wow. Yeah. Ultimately, another penalty shootout. Another time that that England were out. But your your journey following the following the World Cup didn't end there, did it? No. So then um, I then I kind of abandoned Chris, and I <laughs> I, I then got a a plane back to um, Laboul, where England were based. Yeah. Because I wanted to hear, you know, what um, Hoddle had to say about the about, about the whole thing, and um, and so I left the car at the, at the airport and and flew 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 back, and then had to get the train back, and and it was yeah, it was it was pretty grim and pretty sort of funereal, really. Um, and Hoddle's press conference was was you know very um, downbeat and 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 that sort of thing, and the, and the brutal truth was that. You know, England had only played four games. Um, mm. I mean, it's, it felt more than that because of that last game being such a sort of iconic uh, encounter between England and Argentina. But in, in reality, um, you know, we we didn't get we didn't get much further than the first first proper round. No, you're right. At the beginning of the tournament in the book, you wrote that France as a nation were perhaps a little disinterested in in the whole thing but as, obviously as soon as they started going through the rounds the the interest there really started to build didn't it yeah yeah it really did and uh um it was you're absolutely right i mean i don't know i mean there's france is a funny old country funny old people uh, <laughs> uh and uh you know big, big in that their rugby and, yeah. and and all that by the end i mean then you know Paris and, and then the Champs Elysees and, and everything else. Yeah, they really, really did get get into it. And um, and I think you know, looking back on it, you would say that it was a it was a fantastic tournament and it was it was well run really. And uh, and the, you know, it's always 
pretty amazing when the home nation wins, you know, um, to justify all that expense and organization and everything. Yeah, very true, very true. Back then when when Hoddle was doing his post-match or sort of conference that, that you went to see, did you get the impression that his time would be up very soon because he would only have four more games? Yeah, no, I didn't really. Um, as you know, that, that then this whole business about him writing his, you know, this, this, this diary and David Davis sort of helping him and, uh, and that, you know, there'd be this sort of auction um, and I think the figure was like £250,000 was banded about. And then sympathy for Hoddle at that point, it, it vanished really. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, I think, I think I said in the book, it was, it was like watching a, a classroom sort of uh, suddenly get it becoming a sort of playground brawl. You know, because there had been this tension with with the media, and now the media felt sort of they were vindicated in a way, because Hoddle hadn't always played perhaps with a straight bat, and and hadn't really sort of explained been been an open enough, and then transpires that he wasn't being open at all, and that in fact he was you know writing his own sort of book, which is going to sell a lot of money, and 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 that sort of thing. So so yeah, it was it was an unfortunate end. Mm. And by chance as well, reading, I think it was, it was very much towards the end of the book, Roy Hodgson, his name was mentioned almost 10, 12, 14 years before he would actually become England manager. Um, and, and I think you wrote something, what was it? How do we know that Roy Hodgson would make a better England manager than Glenn Hoddle? He might be less infuriating, uh, but that's another matter. Um, I mean, he was obviously on the uh, on the scene back then. I know he was in charge of Switzerland, I believe, at one at one stage. Yeah, yeah, he he was in charge of Switzerland, and um, I don't know if I mentioned in the in the in the book, but uh, I always had a soft spot for 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 Roy Hodgson. Actually, although I you know I I don't think he was ever going to be a great England manager. But, you know, I think that if you talk to a Crystal Palace fan, they'd say that he was a, he was a great Crystal Palace manager. And, and um, but when he was, um, I was working for the Telegraph at the time and, and he was the, the, the manager of, of Switzerland. And it was that World Cup, which England didn't qualify for. So we're looking at 90, 94. 92, 94. Uh, yeah, absolutely right. And um, I went out and... Um, to, to interview him and and he we went and had lunch and he was he was just so charming and afterwards he said this is in Zurich and he said do you know do you know Zurich and and I said I don't actually um, but I'm going to have a little wander around later and he said well, would you like me to to drive you around so he and I got us a conducted tour of Zurich by by Roy Hodgson for lovely five minutes so I've always had a soft swap for him that a nice one the the book. Lost in France, okay, it's, it's a fairly old now, obviously, the story of the 98 World Cup. It's still available. It's, it is a great read. But, Mark, thank you very much for, uh, for just giving us an insight into that, that time ago and, and another of, of England's World Cups. Well, thank you very much, Russell, for having me. And it's been a great pleasure. And uh, it just, yeah, you're absolutely right, some time ago, which is why the memory is a little bit foggy on some of the details. <laughs> <laughs> it's all good i mean fortunately we've got the likes of youtube as well that we can relive it all should we uh should we want to great good thanks very much
My thanks go to Mark Palmer there for his memories of that tournament. As England departed the competition, the hosts France were making headways for Paris and the final. Seeing off Paraguay, Italy and Croatia to get there. Brazil also had their eyes on the prize, not wanting to relinquish it after winning it in USA four years earlier. They had beaten Chile, Denmark and the Dutch to meet the hosts in the final. And along the way, the Netherlands had put Argentina out with a spectacular Dennis Bergkamp strike. Now before the showpiece occasion, there was confusion surrounding Brazil's Ronaldo. He had been omitted from the starting lineup handed into a FIFA official 45 minutes before kickoff, only for him to be reinstated. It's been said that he suffered a convulsion in the lead up to the game. The pressure mounted on him as a 21 year old was immense. He would, however, go on to win the Golden Ball as player of the tournament and go on to have a glittering career playing for the likes of Inter Milan and Real Madrid. But as for the final, that was one-way traffic. France, they ran out 3-0 winners thanks to two goals from Zinedine Zidane and one right at the end from Emmanuel Petit. The 16th World Cup was over. The next one would be held in the Far East for the very first time. It is one I have very fond memories of and I'll be looking back and explaining why very soon. I hope you can join me for it. My name has been Russell Osborne. This is the Three Lions podcast. You can find out all about it on the social media channels. Just search Three Lions podcast. Give it a follow there. And all the previous World Cup episodes can be found at your podcast provider of choice. Feel free to go back, tune in to ones that maybe you haven't heard before. It'd be great to have you along for them. And indeed, for the next edition too. So until then, take care, look after yourselves. Cheers. Cheers.